Good evening, good evening. So glad to see each one of you, all of you that are joining us online. Welcome. Well, I invite you, let's stand and let's uh, give thanks to our God this evening. This is the day that you have made. Whatever comes, I won't complain. For all my hope is in your name. And now your joy awaits my praise. I give thanks for all you have done. And if I will sing of your mercy and your love, your love is unfailing. Every 
Highways, you're the only one. 
Philippians chapter 2 comes to mind that he's been given the name that is above every name. That at the name 
of Jesus. Every knee will bow. And we are here this evening choosing to bow our knee in worship and adoration of the King. us life. He's love. He's light. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise pour out our praise in your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise to you only you give life You are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Great are you, Lord, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out In our lungs, 
stand and sit here in the presence of you, O Holy God. We are here reverently knowing that you are all-powerful. You are all-awesome. And we know that without being clothed in the blood of Jesus and His righteousness, we wouldn't even be able to be in your presence. We thank you that we can be, but we still come reverently. We come with respect, holy God, full of thanksgiving and praise and celebration because it was because of your holiness because of your great love for us that you chose to give your life so that we could sing praises like this to you. So we worship you. We sing hallelujah to our King, worthy of all of our praise. Amen. You may be seated. If you would find your way over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 as we continue our journey through the Bible, there's a couple of things I do want to bring your attention to as we're looking at uh, this Sunday, we're having a baptism. Super cool. We got uh, five people that attended the baptism class on Sunday. If you're interested in baptism, uh, we'll baptize you anytime. We want to be able to um, have that opportunity, but if you've been thinking about it and you go, oh, I missed the class on Sunday... But I do want to get baptized. Uh, you, can, you can meet with me um, tomorrow. 
or we'll meet and we'll set up a time to encourage you to be able to do that. So we want to do that. Also, there's been some questions with church camp out being next week, whether or not we're going to be doing Wednesday night journey through the Bible. The answer is absolutely yes. Wednesdays will be normal uh, next week. Some people will be gone camping and that's okay. Um, but we want to encourage you guys to come on out and, and enjoy that the time of fellowship and study of God's Word. And that's going on. Tonight we're going to be taking a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8. As Paul continues in responding to the church, he turns the corner a little bit in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's dealing with fundraising. You're going, well, Paul was doing fundraising? And the answer is yes. He was collecting funds specifically for support of the church in Jerusalem that was under persecution. And if you remember during his tour, he was moving through and on his way to the city of Corinth to be able to provide the funds. He was in Macedonia and just gathering the funds from the churches in Asia that were all there. And there was a real strong motive in the churches of Asia to be able to support the churches in Jerusalem um, in, in Israel and all the house churches because of the persecution. The churches of Asia received the gospel from the Jews there in, in Israel. And so there's this huge motivation to be able to encourage them to, with the same grace that God had shown them. They want to be able to display grace back. And so we're going to be talking a, a lot about giving tonight and grace giving. And to be able to understand that it is by grace that we're saved, this grace gift that we've been given. And the Macedonians were really significant in their grace giving. Uh, even though they were struggling, they were giving gifts and, and encouraging. And so what Paul does is, is he's getting ready to come into Corinth and he's trying to get them to prepare their grace gift and he's using the Macedonians as a point of reference because one of the things that the Church of Corinth was really struggling with was carnality. In their carnality and in their, their human nature, they were really struggling. They didn't really appreciate Paul as much because of the Judaizers that come in and they were struggling with giving um, from their abundance. And so within this, Paul says, look, at, there's some things we've got to deal with. Money is one of those really difficult topics to deal with, especially when it comes to church. It seems to be a trigger um, for stress for people, especially with all the fundraisers, the telemarketers. Um, and so whenever you take money and you join it with a faith system, uh, people start getting weird. And, and rightfully so, because the whole fundraising aspect within the faith system has been so abused over time. And so as we approach this, and as a church, we do not target the topic of money unless it comes up in Scripture. And that's when we talk about it. As we go through and we're studying the full council, then we talk about it. Well, these two chapters, Paul specifically talks about that. Other churches and other faith systems will target money a whole lot more which I think is what has created the bad taste in people's mouth. The TV evangelists that would seek to fleece the flock, the ones that would get on there and say, you know, you need to give money and by faith you do this. And, they, and you know, the, the elderly person that is on a fixed income is coerced to be able to give more and it, with false promises and such things. And so within this, these 
religious manipulations have happened, and, and again, it's, it's created a struggle. But we have to understand that the gospel is free. Yeah, and the ability to give the gospel is free. The problem we run into is the corporate institution, when it comes to being in that place of supporting the ministry and the work of the gospel, there is some overhead and different things that need to be taken care of. And so in the institution, God had already established, both in the Jewish culture and the New Testament culture, the necessity to be able to support the work of the ministry. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But the idea is this, that those that are receiving from the gospel should support those that are working hard to minister the gospel. Paul would write to Timothy as he's working with the church there in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And the whole construct is, if you are giving yourself into that full-time work of developing and working the ministry of the gospel, then you're, you're gaining your income from the gospel. Paul would say that in 1 Corinthians 9.14, where he would say, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And there's always this rub, well, should a, should a minister or should a pastor be paid? And what's the difference between them and a, and a Sunday school teacher and all those? Well, it really depends on how much time you're spending in doing that. If you're spending all of your time preparing the work of the gospel and you can't work outside of doing that, then it's in support so that the whole body would benefit from that. God established that even in the, in the Levitical system, that the priests would receive uh, supplies from the temple. So within this, we see missionaries that are going out in the mission field, working full-time in the, in the mission field, and so they are supported financially to be able to do that. And that's appropriate and it's biblical. What's unbiblical is the fleecing of the flock or living in a manner that abuses that privilege or lives above what you should within this. And so within this, we've we got to understand that as Paul's addressing this, He's dealing with this church at Corinth who has an issue with things, with money, and the love of money within this. We also have to understand that the principle of giving is an act of worship. When you give, it really is this act of worship. It's taking the first fruits of that which God has provided and setting it aside unto His service. And so it's recognizing when you give, God, everything I have comes from you. And, and therefore, God, I'm giving back the first fruits of that which you have given to, to me in an act of worship. And what it does in giving to God first, and we'll talk about this in, 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 a, in a moment, but giving to God first, what you're really giving to God first is your life first. And then you're, from that, then you're secondarily giving those resources or the fruit that God has provided in abundance. And we'll, we'll talk about how that works out practically. But so many people get so wrapped around the axle when it comes to money and it comes to giving. Yeah, and there's, there's a whole scope of people that get sideways on it. In the context of what we're talking about here, Paul is gathering funds 
and preparing to gather funds from the church at Corinth within that. And he'll send Titus in here. So let's start out with verses uh, 1 through one through 15 as he's dealing with this collection. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And that that great ordeal of affliction and their abundance of joy and their deep poverty and overflowed the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. And this is not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we'll pause there for a minute and we'll take a look at this idea of grace. And, and in, in the context here, grace is that grace giving. So we, we need to define what grace is. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. It's getting what you don't deserve. Where mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what you do deserve. And grace and mercy usually go together in a lot of different ways. Well, Paul is making his appeal for the financial support to be prepared, as we had read earlier in in Corinthians. Get the financial support ready. In the first letter, he says, get it ready, because when we come through and we make our sweep, we'll gather that, and then we're going to take it back on our tour to be able to support the churches. He's already been through Macedonia and through Asia, so he's been to Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea. One of the things that's interesting about this section is that grace appears ten different times. And it's in, the, it's in the context of giving. It's these grace gifts that are there. And so we've got to understand that when we give, we're giving not because somebody deserves it, but it's a gift. It, it is something that you're giving because, not because they, they've earned it, they're entitled to it, but you're giving it to them. And it's out of a love and compassion. That's in that. It, it's one of the things that I think that gives an evidence of your faith. How you give in a grace gift or grace giving really demonstrates the invisible faith. Visible giving shows the invisible faith that you have. That is there. Because from a world standpoint, standpoint the world doesn't give anything away for free, do they? You don't get it for free from the world. There's always what? Strings attached. But grace gifts have no strings attached. It is a willing gift that is there. And as Paul says, the Macedonians spontaneously gave to support without Paul's request. When they heard what was happening in Jerusalem and those people, it was like, oh, we've got to support them. We've got to do something about that. A number of months ago, when Ukraine was being invaded by Russia, that was our response from this church. And we put it out. We just said, here's the opportunity. This is what the elders are doing with the resource that we have from, from, from some of the giving that we've had. And spontaneously, the church matched those resources. We got pictures the other day of one of the houses, the prefabbed houses that was put on the property. Pictures of these families that, have, that are coming in and being housed and being taken care of. And the refugees that are there. And so when you hear the need, and you have that spontaneous unction 
to be able to give to support and to help alleviate that, that is coming from the basis of grace. Because you're moved by the Spirit of God to give. And so Paul was amazed that the Macedonians were, were doing this. And it wasn't manipulative. It wasn't based on words. Paul didn't go, oh, let me show you the pictures of the poor orphan, orphan kids in Jerusalem and with no food. It, it wasn't any of that. So this is what's happening and they're struggling. Meanwhile, you've got to understand from the, the construct of the believers of Macedonia, they were also under persecution and great affliction. So it wasn't like they were well off and they had great opportunity. But one of the things that Paul talks about within this, and I think it's true, is their ability to relate. Because the Macedonians were under persecution and they were lacking, they knew what it was like to be in need. And because they understood what it was like to be in need, they could empathize with those in need and therefore give to those in need. Does that make sense? And that's how grace giving wells up. It wells up from this empathy of being able to relate. That this poverty and affliction that they heard of didn't just open up their hearts and they didn't just say, well, we'll just pray for them. They said, no, we want to help them. We want to encourage them. Now, at the, at the risk of looking at this and saying, well, what is Paul manipulating because he's... he's putting the Macedonian Christians against the Corinthian Christians. <coughs> He's not. He's just giving them the model. Paul thought it was wise, and I agree with him, the fact that he would show what grace-giving looks like so that the Corinthian Christians could understand what grace-giving could look like, and they can follow that pattern and that model. There's an old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know what it really looks like, then find a model of what it does look like. How should we give? Well, I don't know what it looks like. And so within this, we see, really, Paul, and all throughout this, he does not emphasize on the amount. He emphasizes the heart. It's the heart. It's not the quantity. Can you think of an account in Jesus' ministry where he was witnessing some giving that was taking place, and he was astonished by the heart behind the gift in the temple courts, a widow that gave what? Two mites. He said, wait, stop. You hear that? Disciples said, what is that? What do you mean? Someone gave a lot. They looked at him. There's 13 trumpet baskets all around us. Clanging coins everywhere. You know what Jesus heard? He heard the heart of a giver because this widow came in and she gave two mites. And Jesus said, all these they've given out of their excess, but she gave out of her sustenance. It was the heart that he recognized. In fact, in Mark 12, 42 and 43, it says, and a poor widow came in put two small copper coins, the amount of a cent, calling his disciples to them, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. The Christian life is full of paradoxes. We've we got to understand, we are different than the world, aren't we? 
And the way things work is different. And when we think of these paradoxes, there is great joy that comes in persecution. There's great confidence in the midst of chaos. There's great riches in the midst of poverty. How do you give when you've got nothing? Remember, it's not the amount. It's the heart. You give with the right heart. And outward circumstances should not impact your inner emotions. Should not allow the outward circumstances of your life to impact your inner emotions or your decisions within that. The one that gives joyfully, as we'll study, is one that is completely dependent upon God. Within that. And that's the first place we got to go. Before you give a dime, or before you give a minute of your time, or your active service, or whatever it is, because giving is much more than money, check your heart and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Because we got to understand that, that giving is, from the heart, is what God looks at. Paul elevates this Macedonian model because it was a sacrificial grace giving. It costs them something. When we think about the sacrifices of God, it, God wants us to be able to give, but it, He wants us to, to give out of one's own existence or, or, or literally out of one's own poverty. It should cost us, not the extra. I always think it interesting how people donate things to the church. Invariably, people will bring all kinds of items to the church. Hey, let's, we're doing a garage sale. Let's donate this to the church. Why are you bringing it to the church? Well, because it's, it's, it's old or it's, we don't use it anymore. Or we don't have any more need of it. So we'll give it to the church. I would be blown away if somebody went out and bought something brand new and said, you know what? God put it on my heart to buy this brand new and give it to you as opposed to the church being a second-hand store. But so many times we view charity that way. And we give the leftovers, as opposed to giving the best. The Macedonians were giving the best. And notice, if you read in here, it says they were begging to give. Please let us give to this. Begging to be able to part of the work, this, this project that Paul was bringing about. Paul didn't have to persuade them. They heard the story and they were begging to do this. And on the other hand, with the Corinthians, he's going to have to motivate them to fulfill an ag agreement that they made a year ago within this. And we'll get to that. What is Paul's point? Grace giving is not mandated and it is not obligated. Hear me clearly. God does not need your money. God's looking at your heart. And if somebody mandates something from you, or if they are obligating you, then do yourself and do God a favor and don't give. But spontaneous grace is a work of the Spirit. 
the spontaneous grace that the Holy Spirit works up in you to be able to act in a gracious way to give time, talent, energy, money, whatever the case is. You hear a need and you say, yes, I want to do that. That's where that grace giving gives. Because here it says they gave themselves primarily, if you look at this, verse 5, they gave themselves to who? The Lord and to us by the will of God. Because in giving, you have to give your gift, which is yourself, to God first. And then you're free to be able to give to whatever is going on. But so many times people are trying to gain God's favor by giving. I'm going to give to everything else and hopefully God will be happy with that. God, you see that? See that check I wrote? Whatever the case is. But Paul says, no, the Macedonian model says they gave themselves to the Lord first. And it was an act of worship. And so the challenge we run into today is this. Who are you giving yourself to first? Are you giving yourself to yourself? Are you giving yourself to God? Are you giving yourself to man? I tell you, you're the only one that knows besides God. And you've got to check yourself. But if you give yourself to God first, I'll tell you, here's a way to know. When you give yourself to God first, you will never look for recognition of the gift. You'll never look for the recognition of the gift. You'll never look for the attaboy. If you're giving to man, you'll always look for the recognition of man. He goes on and he gives some directions for giving, verses 6 through 8. He says, So we urge Titus, as he had previously made it a, a beginning, <clears throat> so he would also complete in you the gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, in all earnestness and in love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as a proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. So Paul gives some directions. And one of the first directions is, is this. And one of the orders is, he says, I'm sending Titus. I'm sending Titus to you, who's going to be the caretaker of this gift. And he'll come to Corinth and he'll collect that gift. What was the gift? Well, a year earlier, they had made a commitment, a, a vow, if you will, of how much they were going to give. And if you remember in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, he said this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections will be made when I come. So the year earlier, he said, whatever you determine is going to be the amount for the next year, first day of the week, set that amount aside. Every day, right? 52 weeks. So that when I show up, at that time he thought he was going to go, changes to Titus. So when I show up, you're not having to scramble to be able to do that. Whatever you determine. Who set the amount for the Corinthian church? The individual did. Paul didn't set him out. But what he does say is whatever you do, do it consistently. Do it as the first fruits. And, and have that desire to give, to be consistent. And so as he's sending Titus in, he's saying, look it, 
I want you to finish well. Finish the work that you started. Finish your commitment. Be true to your commitment. Now, within this, there will be a lot of people that will make a generous commitment at the beginning of something. I'll pledge so-and-so $1,000, whatever. Invariably, sometimes I get these, these calls, you know, and it's like, will you donate so much? It's like, yeah, I'll donate so much. Great, we're going, to send it, we're going to send out the donation card for you, and then you can fill it out and do the check or whatever you're going to do. It's like, okay. And that comes, and it comes in, it's like, okay, now I'm going to write the check, and I'm going to send it off. But I would venture to say for every person that fulfills their pledge, I wonder how many people don't fulfill that pledge. Yeah, I'll donate $1,000. And it comes in, and they nah, I don't have the money right now. And then they don't do it. I'll pledge $10,000. I don't have any money. What happens to that organization? They've already set what they were going to get based on what those pledges were within that. And it's not consistent within the giving. And it doesn't help the people, nor does it help the ministry. Why is it important for Paul to send Titus to go get the pledges that it took a year? Well, it would take a year to get a significant amount of pledges. The other thing is, think about their banking system. Did they have debit machines in Corinth? Could they transfer money electronically from Corinth into Jerusalem? No. They would have to hand carry this money. And it would take time to get all the way through on the ships and the travel and all of that to get the money over to them within this for the ministry support. One of the other things that I think that Paul is calling them out to do in fulfilling their commitment is he's calling them to have a mature faith. If you said you're going to do something, then be mature and do it. Don't be like uh, you know, a little kid that changes their mind. And if you said you're going to give, then you need to give and show that maturity within there. One of the things that I think is interesting in this, is as Paul works through these, these passages here, he says... Give in the same way that you've just been blessed. And he uses the gifts of the Spirit. In verse 7, he says, Just as you as abound, or there's much of in everything, notice the gifts. The gift of faith, the gift of tongues, the gift of knowledge, and in all, the gift of, of, in all earnestness, the gift of love. And we inspired in you. See that you abound in the grace gift work. That is there. In other words, we've invested in you these spirituals and you've been blessed and you've been abounding in these spirituals and these spiritual gifts. Do you know there's a gift of giving? There is a gift of giving. There are people that have this tremendous gift of giving and generosity. It doesn't let all the other believers off the hook. You can't take your spiritual ministry test and, or your, your test and go, Nope, I don't have the gift of giving. No. But there are those that are philanthropists. I know of a couple. I know of one guy that, that just loves to not only give, but to organize giving. Rallies a foundation to be able to support Christian ministry. That's a gift to be able to do that, to generate that. And so... Paul elevates this grace gift giving to the level 
of the other gifts. And he says, look, for those that are in there that have that gift, you need to exercise that gift to be able to do that in the same aspect within that. And to exercise these gifts, to excel in the grace gift of giving. And as I said, you know, they were, need, they were to set their gift apart the first part of the week, so when Titus got there. But the other part, again, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command. Notice how many times through this text, Paul says, I am not commanding this. I'm instructing. And there's a difference. He's cautious that they're not taking his words as a mandate, but as an opportunity to participate. Question. How does Paul benefit by raising money from Corinth for the people in Jerusalem? Does he benefit? Does he get anything out of it? No. Who really benefits from having the resources and supporting the ministry that is in Jerusalem? Both the receiver of the gift and the giver of the gift because it unifies. It partners. It brings the two together that are in there. Why is this important? Because the people that were hurting in Jerusalem are Jews. And the people in Corinth are Gentiles. What a testimony that takes place when the Gentiles are supporting the Jews. And the boundaries, as we talked about last Sunday, are broken. What a testimony to the world to be able to support that. And so we think about this giving that is there. It is a testimony of faith, but it's also a test of faith. You want to know how God matures believers? Stewardship. Stewardship. If you give your kids an allowance and you teach them how to be a good steward of their allowance, you have to walk them through how to put money into a savings, how to put money into entertainment, how to put money into bills and all those kinds of things. God has given you all, all of us, resources to be stewards over. And giving is one of the ways that God matures us as his kids into stewardship. To be able to do that, the other aspect of giving is its love. It's love for one another. Because when you give, when you give, what you're really saying is, I am taking a resource that I've been blessed with and I want to give it away to you. I want to bless you with this. I want to show love that way. And it is a huge thing. I know as a church, this is something that we do and we will continue to do it as as long as I can, is we provide funeral services. And Marilyn and the team, they, they put together funerals. You have no idea what a blessing that is. You want, to, you want to see the blessing? Come and serve with Marilyn in the funeral ministry and watch it happen. These families that come from the community that have no church, no pastor, that have nothing, and they come in and we do the whole service and the food and everything, and they say, well, how much was it? And we say, nothing. And they are blown away. And they are blessed because of that. That is showing love, which really is the motivation for giving. You say, well, I don't know. You want to know how you know? Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul lays out, here is why you give. For you know 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Why should I give? Because Jesus gave everything to me. Why should I serve? Why should I give away my time, talent, resource, whatever? Why should I do that? Because Jesus made himself poor for your sake. He graced you with the grace gift of eternal life. That you're saved by grace, not of works. You can't buy salvation. It's a gift. You were graced by Jesus. And Jesus is God's grace gift to you. And God's grace giving of the sacrifice. Notice the phrase, and I know that you've heard it before, but it says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about grace giving, or if we were to insert the grace gift of the Lord Jesus Christ, now you can understand what giving is. Who Jesus, God, left His throne, descended to earth, added to Himself humanity, set aside a lot of His powers, His strengths, His authority, and His entitlement to walk this earth, to die across death, so that you and I would be saved and be given eternal life as a grace gift. Why should I give my time, talent, resources to somebody else? Are you better than Jesus? Based on the depth of the grace gift of the cross, of what Jesus has done, we are indebted to that. You think about the poverty of Jesus that he would endure. The attitude that he had, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 we think about all of these things. Matthew 8, 20, Jesus said, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Jesus didn't even own a house. Now granted, He wouldn't need it for very long, but He even borrowed a tomb. He only needed it for three days, so that's not a problem. But you think about that. He made Himself to be nothing so that you and I could receive everything. Who am I to hold back any resource that God has given to me? I, I can't do that. So from the position of understanding the grace gift of, that I've been given, now I have a platform to be gracious and give to other people my time, talent, and resources, and not hold anything back within that. But the Corinthian church was struggling with that because they were, in a sense, saying, well, what, what is it in it for me? If you don't get anything else out of tonight, understand this. Jesus' real motive for His grace gift was for you. To be in relationship with you. If you meditate on the grace gift of eternal life and from that place, really meditate on that. From that place, who am I to tell somebody no? When the Holy Spirit moves on you and says yes. It's the example that the Corinthians should follow because grace giving means you give yourself. 
first to God. You say, well, did Jesus do that? Yeah. Jesus gave himself first to his Father when he said, Father, not my will, but what? He grace-gift himself to the Father first. And then he grace-gift himself to us. And Jesus gave out of his poverty so that we would live. It is a powerful, powerful thing to think about that grace gift that is afforded to us. Paul goes on. As he transitions, if this is the model, then he gives an encouragement. Finish the work. Verses 10 to 12. I give my opinion in this matter. Notice he says, my opinion. For this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, and not only do this, but also to desire to. That's what you made this commitment a year ago. But now finish, do it also, so that just as there was the readiness and desire to do it, there also may be the completion of your ability. For if the readiness is present a year ago, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he goes on and he says, now it's my opinion, you need to finish the work. Notice again, he doesn't mandate it. But it's good for you. It's good for you to complete and fulfill your obligation, your commitment within this. There, there's an old saying that says, the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. But we want to follow through and, and do that good work that God moved on our heart so that we can see it come to its completion. And he says, finish this work but notice how he says, it's my opinion that you should finish this work based on your commitment a year ago, but do it based on your ability. What Paul doesn't say is, if you overcommitted a year ago and you do not have the means today to, to fulfill it, don't go into debt to be able to do that. I have heard of people that have made a commitment of a tithe and then they start tithing off of their credit card. And so what they'll do is, I don't have the money, but I'm obligated because of my commitment, so I'm going to go into debt to pay a tithe to the church. Is that reasonable? Is that right? No. Paul says, according to your ability. Remember, what's the most important thing? Your heart. That you give yourself to God first. And then give according to your ability, but make sure that you are committed in the giving. He doesn't say don't stop giving. One of the things that I want to challenge people with is, is this. He is not calling for a tithe. He's not calling for a specific amount. You set the amount in grace giving. You set the amount. But just be consistent in doing that. Whatever the case may be. Grace giving is not a bill. But it's a gift of generosity. I know of one faith system that will audit its congregants' tax returns and then will send to its congregants a bill based off of their tax returns of how much money they should donate to the church. Now, what should you do in a church like that? Run! Run! 
How much money did you make last year? Was that net or gross? Run. Some people have limited resources, and I've talked with people that say, well, Carrie, I, you know, we are, we are paycheck to paycheck. We are struggling just to make ends meet, and there really isn't anything left over. Got a penny? Then do a penny. But there's some guidelines that Paul will cover and what that really means. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But you've got to be able to do it with joy. If you have limited resources, and, and I love the fact that he says, put it over a year. You may have a bad week, you may have a good week. It's an agrarian culture. They may have the crop come in only certain times of the year. Whatever the case is, to be able to do that. But give according to your own ability. Verse 13, then he talks about this principle of equity. He says this, for this, in 13 to 15, he says, for this is not the ease of the others, but for your affliction by the way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not lack. Now, what Paul is not advocating for is socialism. He is not saying, okay, if you've got too much, you need to give away so that everybody operates on this certain amount. That's not what he's saying at all. But he's, he's actually addressing the fear and the bias. What the Corinthian church was, and he was addressing is, look, I don't have an awful lot, but why should I take my extra and make somebody else rich? I don't want to take what I've got and make them rich. So I'm just going to hang it on. I'm going to keep it in Corinth. I'm not going to send it out there because I don't want somebody else getting rich off of my donation within that. We have our own problems to deal with here. Paul says, no. Inequality is this, and this is in God's economy. God may abundantly bless you at a certain time so that you could help others. Hence, Corinth was rich at this time. Jerusalem was poor. At one point in time, Jerusalem was rich spiritually. Corinth was poor spiritually. And Jerusalem and the apostles, they had taken the gospel out through Asia all the way into Corinth and they were blessed. But now they have this physical need. And so what Paul's point is this, he's not asking believers to, to create this, this social economic equity for everybody, but to recognize God's economy. God at times will give an abundance to one group so that from their abundance, they might support those that have a deficit. You say, well, Carrie, how does that work? It's real simple. Take a look at Joseph going into Egypt. Remember the account of Egypt? Joseph got put into a place. Why? Because there was going to be a famine in the land. Joseph understood by the Spirit of God that there was going to be seven good years interpreting a dream and seven bad years. And so he went to Pharaoh and he says, for seven good years, we're going to stock everything. We're not going to spend everything that we've got in that seven good years. 
We're going to live off of what we need and we're going to sock the rest away. Why? Because there's seven bad years coming. Why? Because in the seven bad years, God had already prepared Joseph and that resource for Joseph's family to come out and into Egypt and be provided for. So what is the principle? The principle is this. When God blesses you, don't blow it all on yourself. Live within the means, the normal means, and when you have the excess, store it. Why? Because there will come a time when God would provide you the opportunity to take that excess and reallocate it to those people that do have that need. We see that with Joseph. We also saw that as he says here in verse 15. Look at verse 15. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not lack. What is he talking about? In Exodus, in manna. In God's provision in the wilderness, he gave enough manna for everybody, didn't he? And everybody was to gather what they need, and God gave just enough to be able to do that. And so within this, God has given us this ethic that he will always provide enough for you to live. And if there's any extra, then he provides enough for you to share with others. Ephesians 4.28 Paul would write to the church, he says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has a need. God's economy is this. I will provide for you, and in my grace I might provide for you more. But don't raise your level of living so that you can live based on these bonuses because you don't know what the future has for you and you are going to be in a position where I'm going to want you to be able to support other people. And that's what, again, as a church, we've been able to do that through missions where God is providing for our missionaries and we have an abundance of money that is in the contingency fund that can supply the people's needs. Benevolence fund. Our benevolence fund is is well over $45,000. You're going, well, I'm not going to give to the benevolence fund. Well, you should. And here's the reason why. Because we have been giving it away to people that need roofs, that need ramps, that need medicine, that needs dental care, that doesn't have dental insurance, And all of these things. And you know what the amazing thing is? When we release that, God provides more. And who knows? As elders, we we look at this and we watch this. And the the way the economy is, when people have need, then the church, you, us, get to provide for that need. We have no idea what next year is going to hold. We have no idea what two years are going to hold. So should we blow it all? No. But God has put us into a position of being able to use these resources for those that need benevolent help and in missions. And those are the things that that God has provided. And we're able to do that. To be able to make that contribution. 
and to be able to join these together. And Paul is bringing the two together. Romans chapter 15, 26, 27 says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them, for the Gentiles have shared in the spiritual thing. They are indebted to minister to them also in the material things. They understood that spiritual debt. Do you understand the fact that when we support Marcel and the, the church in Romania, we're, we've been supporting them for a long time, but now they're supporting the church in Ukraine as the church is coming to them. What a blessing, isn't it? Where we can go to the Crisis Pregnancy Center and say, look, we want to help support you in getting an ultrasound machine and have the resource to do that. Why? Because God moves on your heart in grace giving, and if you give out of grace giving, God reallocates those resources to where they need to go to meet those needs. To do that, though, you need an administrative team. And that's where Paul goes next, in verses 16 all the way to chapter 9, verse 5. He said, but thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Titus would lead the administrative team. For he not only accepted our appeal, but he himself very earnestly has gone on your own accord. So Paul had asked Titus, go. And we have sent along with him the brother whose fame was in the things of the gospel is spread throughout the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, our, our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of the generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent them, with them, our brother, whom we have often tested, note, tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence. As for Titus, he is my partner, fellow worker among you, and as for our brothers, our brethren, they are messengers of the churches of the glory of Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. So he goes in in this first part and he says, this is the collection team. Why would Paul send the collection team and why would Paul send Titus? One, because Corinth already knew Titus. Two, he was proven to be one that was a man of integrity. If you had a big donation and you were sending out this donation, would you send it to the first guy who says, yeah, I'll go and I'll take that money? No, I don't think so. You would take somebody that's tested, that's proven. Because the, the temptations would be great. So the Corinthian church knew Titus. They trusted him. They had the common connection when he got there. Titus not only had a good reputation in Corinth, but all throughout Asia. All the churches knew it. So as he moved through, he would be able to make that connection with them. But he had to be one of good credit. Why is he sending Titus? So that it doesn't discredit the ministry that is there. It would be trustworthy. What would happen to the churches of Asia if the money got lost, stolen, embezzled, or all those other things? Would they trust Paul ever again? No. So he's putting himself on the line. But he trusts Titus. Why? Because he's a co-laborer and a co-worker. And he's appointed to travel with Paul throughout these areas. Is integrity important? Yeah. Integrity basically says this. 
you are the same in private as you are in public. You're consistent within that. Ministries and ministry leaders must have glass pockets when they're handling money. They should. Absolutely have to. All the tithes and the offerings that come into this church, no one has a clue except for one person. We see the numbers, but we never see the people. And there is checks and balance systems all throughout our, our, our accounting system. We have an audit committee that audits once a year, takes a look at all of these different things that are there. Why? Because of all of the abuses that have come. Many church leaders have been discredited because they've embezzled money and handled money poorly. And when, it, when that happens, then it discredits the name of Christ. One of the ways that people are discrediting the ministry is when a ministry leader takes an exorbitant salary. I read of one ministry leader that had his own private plane. But he went to the congregation and he said, you need a special donation to buy me a new plane. Because the old one is just too old. And, and, and you know, I'm very important, so I must travel to preach God's Word. So you need to provide that for me. So we need to upgrade. No... Go fly economy like everybody else. It's not right within this. So much so that Paul would write to Timothy and Titus himself would write this about ministry leaders. In 1 Timothy 3, 2-3 says this, An overseer then must be above reproach, husband and one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospital, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, and note, Free from the love of what? Money. Titus 1.7 says this, and Titus would say this, For the overseer must be above reproach of God's work, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, and not fond of sordid gain, which is what? Getting money illegally. Illicit money. You think about that. Has the church by this time already ex have to dealt with people with money issues? Yeah, Judas. Did he have an issue with money? Yeah, Ananias, Sapphira, issue with money? Sure. Absolutely. Because greed is in our hearts. But Titus was, was proven. And then verses nine or chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Paul explains the reason for the team. He, he has to explain himself, but it's interesting it's almost like he's talking to children when he writes to these, this Corinthian church. Notice what he says. He says, For it's superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For, you, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia had been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case." So that I was saying you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to speak of you, but will be put to shame and confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gifts so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not afflicted by covetousness. So he says, this is the forward team, Titus and the guys. They're the forward team there to go get ready. But what's interesting is how he words this. Some commentators would say that chapter 9 is a separate letter in itself. It's not. 
When you look at it in the original Greek, perimengar, it literally means for to begin with. It's much like saying, I really don't need to remind you, but I will. Now, how many of you all have had teenagers and you're getting ready to leave them in charge of something and you've given them instructions, but on your way out the door, what do you do? Repeat the instructions. I know I don't need to tell you again not to have anybody over. But I'm telling you again, don't have anybody over. That's what Paul is saying. I know I don't need to go over this again, but just so that you know, when Titus gets there, have everything ready so that when I get there with some of the Macedonians and we're able to celebrate this giving... You're not going to look like a fool or make me look like a fool within this. Paul had full confidence, but even in his confidence, he repeats himself again so that it wouldn't mess things up. Are first impressions important? They absolutely are. And if the Macedonian Christians get around the Corinthian Christians... And Paul has built up the Corinthian Christians to the Macedonian Christians. Say, hey, look, we're all brothers and they're, they're serving you and you got this gift. And we're going to go celebrate together. And they get there and they go, yeah, we got nothing. It's going to create this rift. And Paul doesn't want to do that. Finally, Paul finishes with an overarching principles of giving. He goes over it again. Not that I need to tell you, but I'm going to tell you again. So I thought it necessary to urge you, brethren, I'm sorry, uh, verse six. Now, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he had purposed in his heart, not to grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Quote, as it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing an increase in the harvest of righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thankfulness to God. For the ministry of this service is not fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by the ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience. Remember, Macedonians coming to the Corinthians. To your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for your, for you because of the surpassing grace of God. Thanks be to God for his incredible gift. So what does Paul do? Well, he says this, look it, this is why we give generously. We don't give out of paying a debt to God, but it's a grace gift that is led by the Spirit, as he said earlier, in unselfish giving. And he gives four different characteristics that are all part of that. First of all, in verse 6, that abundant giving has an abundant outcome. He uses the illustration of a farmer. If you were to plant a field and you wanted a large crop... Would you use a lot of seed? For sure you would. You wouldn't sow sparingly and put 
five seeds per 10 square feet. Because you're not going to get much. And in their idea of sowing, when they would sow seed, they would broadcast it and they would scatter it. The more seed in the ground, the better it's going to come up. And so the idea is he's speaking to a, this agrarian culture and he says, it makes sense. If you're stingy with the seed, you're not going to have much fruit. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 25 says this. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. There is one who withholds what is justly due. And yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. In other words, what you put in is what you're going to get out. What you put into it is going to be what you get out of it. Malachi 3.10 says this, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows from heaven and pour out for you blessing and overflow. Now, granted, these verses have been abused as a manipulation tactic, but to try to get you to give more. That's not the intent. But to understand this, when you give graciously because you've been given or provided for graciously, God provides graciously, which takes away the idea of trying to guard your stuff for yourself. It all belongs to God anyways, doesn't it? The second point is God loves a cheerful giver. To be able to give, to give joyfully. Whether it's your time, money, or talents, whatever you bring to God, you should bring joyfully. Time, money, or talents. If you approach something in giving and you say, do I have to do this? Do me a favor, don't do it. Do I have to give this? Do me a favor, don't give it. Because you're giving it grudgingly. You're not benefiting anybody. If you're doing it out of obligation, don't do it. You should do it generously because you're blessed. And you'll receive the blessing. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. You'll have a blessing when you give with the right heart. But a half-hearted gift or a grudging gift is not a gift at all. Within this, it brings bitterness, resentment. Proverbs 22.9 says, He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives some of his food to the poor. The word cheerful there is hilarious. Hilarious. What does that sound like? Hilarious. You've got to be hilariously laughing when you're giving. But if you're saying, well, if I have to do this, don't do it. But if you say, I get to do this, then do it. It's a privilege. Why? Because the third principle is this. God will supply all your needs. When I understand God will give me what I need, then I live within my needs. In all grace, always, in all sufficiency, and God will always... Four different times it's used. Always. All. Always. Then you need to learn to live within your means, a modest life, and give the rest or have the rest available for people in that need. First Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul would write, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Are you content with what you got? 
If you're not content with what you got, before you give to the Lord, work on that contentment. And say, God, you got this. And lastly, the blessing of God provides thanksgiving. When you give with a thankful heart and a joyful heart, you'll be able to rejoice. Luther once said, I've had many things in my hands that I have lost, but the one thing I placed in God's hand, I still possess. I have many things in my hands I've lost, but the one thing I have in my hand, God will bless. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give us all these things, and we honor you. Lord, I pray even now that your Spirit would work in our hearts, that we'd be grateful for what we have and what we give. And may we give with a joyful heart. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger. The King of glory, the King above all kings, who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder, who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder. The King of glory. The King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You lay down your life. That I would be set. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.